Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Rolling. Take one. Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is a podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. On this, our penultimate show of the season, we're talking to Taylor, a.k.a. Taylor on Instagram about whether or not you can rediscover home as a photographer and a whole bunch of other stuff. We've also gathered a few friends to help us talk about literally the greatest medium format camera ever made, the Mamiya RB67. Vanya will give you a little bit of uh, photographic inspiration. We'll also be reviewing a new book by Liz Potter, a new old book, but a new book. There's the answering machine messages, and there's also a, a whole hell of a lot more. But first, Vanya, how are you doing today? Oh, just fabulous. <laughs> oh, good. I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah, yeah. Everything's really, really good. Um, I'm just kind of hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're just hanging out. Okay. Yeah. What have you been up to? Well, uh... I shot a little bit. I've been shooting very minimal, but I'm very excited. I have a fairly decent size trip coming up. So I'm kind of uh, starting to plan for that and mark my maps and dot my eyes. Okay. <laughs> I guess. Uh, yeah. So kind of just keeping the house nice. And uh, Marley's out of school in like two weeks, which is crazy. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird transition. Summer is always like a little like, okay, what are we doing? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? I guess we'll find that out next episode. Yeah, I, I am trying to figure out gas situations oh my God, for some yeah. reason buying a diesel. I thought I was going to be. <laughs> really like oh it's going to be running super clean and it's a little cheaper than regular gas oh my god you guys it's like almost seven dollars a gallon for diesel it's more expensive than premium it's stupid so that's really going to put a dent in uh my travels this summer unfortunately Mm. but we'll see but how how about you how how have you been have you been planning your trips oh my god i've been planning a lot taylor Uh, Well, we interviewed her a few days ago, but but since then I've been kind of, I wouldn't say stealing. I don't know if stealing is the right word. Maybe, maybe borrowing some of the locations that she's been to. And uh, a lot of them have been the same locations that I'm planning on going to. So it's Mm -hmm. more just like filling out my, my itinerary and finding new things to photograph, uh, being very inspired by uh, our interview, which you all will hear coming up very shortly. Yeah, yeah, that was a very fun interview. Just this past weekend, I, well, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you'll know about The Bottle. And I think that's pretty much the only people who know about The Bottle at this point. Now, The Bottle is a photo I took, and actually I think we did something with Dev Party about that. I took Mm -hmm. a picture of a bottle. I remember you discussing the bottle. Yeah. It was a bottle I found while hiking, and I found a rock to put the bottle on. I took the picture, and lovely, wonderful picture. And for some reason, I left the bottle there. And it's a bottle that had a little bit of flowers in it and uh, some kind of of chrysalis of, of some vintage. But I left the bottle there, 
And so weeks went by, I think six weeks went by and I finally decided to, you know, I, I need to go back and get that bottle. Uh, and that's mm. not really a littering thing because I didn't, I didn't litter, it was already there. It was like an old amber bottle. It was an old amber bottle with a rusty old wire wrapped around it, you know, like good old amber bottles have. Mm -hmm. And so I marked where I took the picture on, you know, on GPS and I found my way back there from a different angle. It was really a, a weird little hike that I took, but I found the bottle and I grabbed it. And now it is with me here right now as we speak. That's why the lights have been flickering and you've been having night terrors. Well, the night terrors are something else entirely. We won't get into that. But yeah, <laughs> the lights flickering are probably due to the haunted amber bottle. The chrysalis so. is probably yeah, some sort of evil entity infesting uh, and, and waiting to emerge in some sort of body snatcher scheme. I think it crawled into your ear and it's laying eggs as we speak and you will, they will emerge like bot flies out of your eye sockets. I can't wait. Finally, I'll have some friends. <laughs> so exciting. Each and every episode so far anyway, we slip on our house slippers and we cozy up to our cozy cardigans. We get all nice and snuggly. And we check ye old answering machine for some reason. We ask, beg, and plead listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird-ass question we come up with. Fanya, what was the question this time around? Which material photography possession do you cherish the most? This seemed to be a more difficult question for some than it should have been. Everyone who called in did wonderfully with it, but there did seem to be a bit of confusion early on with those who maybe don't understand the, the, the bizarre wording of the question. Sometimes words and me don't do good together. No, they do not. I am stuck here reading some of his stuff, and let me tell you, it... It's wonderful when he says it. <laughs> when I say it, it's not. <laughs> it's not that. Well, regardless, why don't you push the button? Who can it be? Hello. Hello. Yes, this is me. Hi, Vanya and Eric. This is Lars Bunch. I've got like plenty of cameras, negatives, lenses, whatnot that I just love. But I think actually one of the things that I love the most is I bought this folding cheap bellows camera at a uh, thrift store in the 80s. And it had a roll of uh, exposed film in it. So I developed it and it turned out to be these shots from the 1965 uh, World's Fair. It's got that iconic Unisphere globe, and I'm pretty sure it had to be shot in 1965 because the people in the shots are, you know, they're all dressed in the height of 1965 fashion. And it's just this beautiful little bit of history that sat, you know, untouched for years until I bought this camera and developed the film. And, uh, and it was also the year I was born, so I thought that was kind of neat. 
Do you know the photos that he's talking about, the the globe thing from the World's Fair? No, um, I don't. But I'm I'm always very curious about the World's Fair and why we don't have that anymore. You know, I think we do still have it. It's just it's just smaller and nobody really cares. I remember going to an antique store and they had these like World's Fair canes with little animal like heads on them. Okay. And I think they were just like things that you would collect as a kid. Oh, um, that, that may be. I don't know. They're really cool. I want one, of course, because why not? The only thing I really know about the World's Fair is the stuff that we discuss, and that's like early 1900s. But I am interested in 1965. That would be kind of a neat year to see. It would be. Yeah, it took place in New York. The The, the globe thing he's talking about, you probably have seen it. My first exposure to it was, I, I think it was on like the cover of a Beastie Boys record. Oh, okay. Maybe like, maybe a single, I don't know which one it would have been, or maybe just some promo shot, but it's still there. It's just a thing that you can go and see if you ever find yourself in New York for some reason. Hmm. But I think it's interesting that, that I mean, obviously he wasn't talking really about the World's Fair, but the, the cheap bellows camera that he bought in the 80s, that's a neat, yeah. I mean, I couldn't tell if he means like the camera is the, is his like most beloved or treasured possession or it was the film in it. I would, for me personally, I think it'd be the film because that's something that's, you know, a one of a kind thing. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much it costs in the 80s. Oh, I wonder. And because obviously it, still it was work? like an old Bellows camera from the 50s at least. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was neat that the last role in it was shot in 65. Which I guess is mm-hmm. only 25-ish, maybe 30-ish years later, if, if math works, which it might not. But yeah, very cool. I like that. I do too. Okay, let's go to the next. Hey, it's Nick here, Count Snackula on Instagram, and I think my answer has to be my grandfather's Olympus 35RC. It's the camera that got me back into film photography. It was a thoughtful gift. It's that sense of connection to prior generations, and as time's gone by, I've learned that we actually shared a lot of other passions in terms of our quirks and interests in photography itself, like bulk loading expired film and stuff like that, like he did back in the day. But really, it's not about the material things for me, and if I was running out of a burning house, there were a lot of things that I'd probably pick up before any of my camera stuff. That's a good question, actually. If your house was on fire, would your camera stuff be the first thing you would save after living things, obviously. Oh yeah, um, my mom had us train negatives. Oh yeah, for sure. Negatives, so we had like uh, two or three bins of negatives and we knew where they were and she would like, she'd be like, all right, the house is on fire, what are you grabbing? We're grabbing the negatives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think with my, my family, it was the photo albums. They would mm-hmm. They would definitely have grabbed those. Now for me, uh, my RB67 sits right by the door. It's a doorstop. It's not a doorstop. It is right <laughs> next to your Hasselblad 500C, though. So I could that easily, is a doorstop. <laughs> I could easily grab both at the same time if I really wanted to. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I guess negatives are important to a, to an extent to me, but all the important photos are scanned and digital and residing. Well, okay, I was going to say in the cloud, but they're not. They're residing on hard drives that would be consumed in fire. So <laughs> so maybe hard drives. Maybe hard drives or maybe invest in some kind of cloud storage. Yeah. I well I so I still have my mom's negatives there in my closet. And uh yeah. So mom, 
Just let you know, still going to grab your negatives first. <laughs> it's so rad that your mom listens to us. <laughs> hey, y'all. Uh, this is Coleman at Mountain Shrimp on Instagram. Been listening since the first day and finally remembered to call in on time. I don't know if you've ever seen the little bags that some of the old hot shoe flashes came in. Like, it's like fake leather with a felt interior and a little drawstring on the top. I have one of those. The flash came with the batteries corroded in it. I threw the flash out long ago. This bag, I swear, is the most useful thing I have had in my life. It's been filled with film. It's had my glasses stored in it while I hiked and took pictures. Most of the time now, it acts as a carrying case for either a XA or a little uh, Soviet rangefinder. You need one. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Coleman. Do they know that it, it's basically a royal crown bag, isn't it? That's what it sounds like. It does sound like that yeah. a lot. We used to, we had lots of uses for royal crown bags in my house. I didn't actually know that it was for alcohol. <laughs> you just until... thought people had purple velvet bags? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, like we just had them and it was like, oh, there's like these bag company, whatever. I don't know. They're great bags. No, they are great bags. I know what they are talking about because I have some of my moms and they are very useful. Yeah, I don't I don't know what they're talking about. I, I don't I don't buy a lot of flashes. I don't buy any flashes. They always come in like a bag. If you get an S like a used SLR, you end up getting that bag that has like Every single pamphlet. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> still in it. I definitely know and that. And the little like duster, like Kodak mm-hmm. little duster thingy. The little little <laughs> ones yes. that only come in used camera bags. Yes. Yeah. yeah you can't find them. No. In they don't the regular, exist anywhere. The regular but, stores. But used, <laughs> they don't exist anywhere but used camera bags. <laughs> okay, and it's interesting that that a bag is they're like their favorite, their favorite, most cherished thing. I don't think that. No, I love bags. You don't think that's that's uh, abnormal or strange or no, not at ordinary, all. No, okay, Mm-mm. cool. Nope. I mean, I, lo- I've, bags, I love bags. bags the next guy, but. fucking rule. Okay, you can put things in them. There's so many. Oh my gosh, fair Seriously, enough. I get like really into bags. Okay. Hi, this is Dan Tree. My Instagram is Dan Tree Photo. I think as photographers, we probably have a lot of stuff that we love from our light meters to bags to camera straps. But I think one of my favorite things is a film pouch that I have from Tap and Die, spelled Tap and D-Y-E. It's a New York gentleman that makes these uh, really nice bespoke items like camera straps. But the film pouch is nice. Uh, it holds five rolls of film. I just love reaching for it when I need to like grab a new roll of film or put a roll of film that I just shot back into it. Super simple, and I absolutely love it. Have you heard of him? Tap and die? Mm-mm. I have not either. But I'll uh, have to look it up. I know what's better than what's better than a bag is a pouch that you could put in your bag. <laughs> <laughs> I'm envisioning like a little little pouch that you keep on your belt. A little pouch satchel. Yeah, type that you, thing. you just you undo it and you, you you open it up and there's film or gold coins inside. Mm. Something like that. Something a hobbit would carry, maybe. Doubloons. <laughs> Yes, doubloons. Yes. <laughs> so two, two messages for bags. Yeah, bags rule. I mean, it's so interesting to me. Like, like not what's inside the bag, but like the bag itself. Yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm just. Impressed. Sometimes it's the vessel. 
I guess sometimes it is. For me, that that vessel is often a slightly used Ziploc baggie. I cherish them, don't get me wrong. What are you talking about? What about the one that I I gave you? The insulated one. That's very nice. I use that for film as well. Remember? I, you were like interested in it. I was like, you can have it. I do remember. I it's do a appreciate pouch. it. It is it's more of like a bank bag. No, it's not. It is. It's, it's long and it opens on the long side. It's a bank bag. Yeah, but it's insulated. Yeah, it's like an insulated bank bag. It's wonderful. Why would you need an insulated bank bag? Cold hard cash. <laughs> Damn you. And our, and our final message, first time caller. Actually, we've got two first time callers. Coleman was a first timer, as is Rachel. Hey guys, so my most cherished item is the small lens cloth that hangs on the side of my camera, which sometimes when it's knocking into my camera as I'm walking, I wonder, do I really need you? And then I'm eating a snack and I somehow, I mean, obviously, end up touching the lens and then I'm super grateful for it. So that would be number one, uh, cannot do without it. And since I bought it, changed my life. Secondly, developing in a small bag I am quite clumsy, so the small embroidery scissors are perfect. I can't imagine people using actual scissors to load their reels. And then lastly, I am a huge fan of Agfa Vista, which no longer exists, um, but I found a few rolls in Hong Kong like three years ago, and I am saving them. Don't know what for. We'll see one day, but now they'll just stay in my fridge. So we'll see if they ever end up getting used. Mm, probably not <laughs> in a museum someday. Anyway, cool. Thanks, guys. Have a good Tuesday. Did you have a good Tuesday? I did. Perfect. It was a great Tuesday. Okay. Check one. Small lens cloth? I use a bandana around my neck. I usually. have a bandana on my tripod. Mm-hmm. I love that the reason she needed the small lens cloth was snack fingers. No. That, <laughs> I mean, honestly... <laughs> I love it. Snacks. I'm actually really surprised that someone didn't say snacks. I mean, are snacks specifically photographically situated? I don't know what I'm saying. Are they? On an outing? Okay, so say you do like a day trip. Do you, you don't make yourself like a little like jelly sandwich and get excited that you're going to like have a picnic later? I'm like, ooh, I'm going to bring a blanket. I'm going to find a like nice grassy place to sit down and have my sandwich. It's going to be so exciting. I don't. My, my day trip shooting is frantic and constant. I will, if I have to eat, I'll eat some sort of sandwich in the car while I'm driving to the next location. I'm horrible to travel with. <laughs> it's so annoying. I'm, I'm really bad. I'm so sorry. Are we going to stop for lunch? Uh-huh. Eat in the car. Yeah, that's insane. I'm a sleepy sloth, and I like to to go hang out in children's playgrounds at the picnic tables and I, have lunches. As you know, I do stop for lunch uh, when I'm when I'm doing multiple days and all that. But just a day trip, I, I generally won't, especially if it's early or late in the season, because the sun up this far north is there's no bad sunlight this far north. You know, in the spring and the fall, the sun is always at a lovely angle. When you get into the summer, it gets really, it gets up top, you know, it gets really high and that's boring. So you break for lunch during the boring light and then you start shooting again when the light gets better, when the sun gets lower. Well, 
So that being said, say you're waiting for some clouds to fill in or whatever, like that would be a perfect time to to have lunch. Yeah. You ever plan it like that? No. No. Like huh. I said, there's no bad light in the spring and the fall. I don't do a ton of summer shooting except when I'm on the road. And then I do stop for lunch because the sun is generally boring during the noon hours in the summer. Mm. Yeah. How about scissors? I never thought of small embroidery scissors as a good pair of scissors. Cause I, my, my childhood with embroidery scissors is reaching my hand into something and being bitten by embroidery scissors mm. <laughs> because they're, they're like sprung open and they're really pointy. Yeah, I lose scissors, so it doesn't matter how many scissors I buy, they will all disappear. So I like knives. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So I have like a Leatherman, and then I also have this like little pearl-handled miniature knife that I think is hilarious. It has like two blades that are like extremely tiny, like one's, a, I don't know, like an inch long, and then there's another even tinier one that's like a half inch long. It's like the tiniest knife so I don't want to hack away at my film. When I have the misfortune of developing 35 millimeter film, I have a small pair of scissors. Like I think they're child scissors or at least the same size as child scissors, but, but sharpish. And so it's just one snip, we're done. Very happy with that. I'm just like, are you circumcising your film? What is this snipping of the, of the film? Well, you have, to, you, have to, you have to detach the film from the film canister and I do that with a pair of scissors. How do you do it? What are you talking about? You're in the you're in the dark bag. Oh, in the dark. Yeah, like, but that's developing. You're not developing on the road. Well, this isn't about the road. This is just she likes small embroidery scissors. Oh, okay. Okay. And Agua Vista. I, I'm sorry. I guess I just was think I, I'm my mind is on the road for some reason. I was like, no, I, I wouldn't bring scissors on the road. I would just bring, <laughs> I would bring knives, lots of them. But okay, that makes sense. Embroidery scissors, yes. Um, that would be way too small. I have if I could find a pair of scissors, they're probably going to be like kitchen shears or something oh stupid. God. But uh, I'll find them. More power to you. And how about Agfa Vista? Have you shot it? I don't think I have, unless. It was um, like Seattle Filmworks rebranded or something. I think I have once. I have, I think, one role in my fridge as well that I've just kind of been hanging on to. I don't think it really made it to the U.S. much, did it? I'm not sure. I think it was the, the um, in England, they have like the dollar stores, like Pound Town or something. Pound Town? No, Pound Land. <laughs> Pound, okay. Pound Town is something completely I mean different. <laughs> This is. Uh, I mean, I that's a, a great. Totally honestly, kind of store. that's a. No, I. I think that they should change rebrand. Honestly, to Pound Town. That sounds epic. <laughs> that's exactly what it sounds like. Well, thank you to everybody for calling in and leaving us a message. Do give a listen to our next episode of Dev Party to hear our take on the question. We will not tell you, not because <laughs> we haven't thought about it yet, but it's because we won't. We aren't going to tell you yet. But until then. <laughs> Vanya, what is the next question we'll be asking for the next episode? You are having some trouble over there. Are you okay? <laughs> Fine. I'm just thinking about Pound Town still. I'm sorry. Uh, what is the next which, question? Which non-material photographic thing do you cherish the most? Let's get ethereal, baby. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> so we asked you before what the material photography possession was. Someone 
Some folks said bags, someone said film, and there is some more bags. So what non-material photographic thing do you cherish the most? This will get even less response and probably more confusion. So good luck with that. But it is the last question of our season. If you've never answered a question before, if you've never called in, try calling in. So call our answering machine and leave us a message. And by call up, we mean go to Instagram and leave us a voice message. And if we like you very, very much, we will play it on the next episode. New gear, dear listeners, might give you a boost of motivation. But what gives you a hit of dopamine? Mm. Is it those random compositions you come up on in your day-to-day life? Or is it a more deliberate, thoughtful decision? Vanya is here to talk to us a little bit about inspiration. I have considered myself the impulsive creator, letting things come when they come, if they ever do. I have a few projects. I have finished projects and projects that are still in the works, of course. I'm just an average person, so finding time and funding can definitely hold me back. But my biggest arch nemesis is myself. I will try to convince you in this concise segment why you, the listener, should start a summer project. So this is sort of a, if you build it, they will come situation. If you decide you want to start photographing, say, all of the post offices in your county, you will start seeing more post offices over and over, like Batter-Meinhof syndrome, and you'll be seeking them out. You'll venture on roads and streets you haven't visited in decades, or maybe ever, if you've even been alive decades. You'll travel down to find that tiny little mid-century diamond in the dusty old towns of yesteryear. You'll wander about the towns themselves and possibly, where are we going with this? Where are they wandering? Come back and listen to our podcast. But you'll keep wandering. You'll start wondering about the towns themselves and you'll wanna like gather census information and you'll get obsessed with these places. I think that's what happens to us. Maybe this project will produce a zine that we can share on the podcast. You'll ask yourself things like, should I just be using like a specific emulsion for this project or just a specific camera or lens or a location? The specific details are basically endless, but we hope we're proving our point here in some weird, dramatic and wacky ways. If you start something that you are excited about, you will be creative. I remember we talked about post offices before and when... Wait, you remember that? Yeah, we talked about it. There was someone that photographed every post office in their state or or I think maybe their county at first. Okay. And then it kind of like built up more and more and they were like photographing post office (laughs) like galore, which I thought was so interesting. And we, we discussed that. We were talking like, oh, I wonder how many post offices are in Los Angeles County. And then we were like on the internets together, like tapping away, looking to see how many are, are still around if some closed. And it, it kind of, I think that's kind of how our brains work as far as when we think of projects, we think of post offices. It's just natural. Oh, we just, I think it just kind of snowballs into that. Yeah. And so if you're excited about something very small, maybe just start with that and let it build on its own. What's what's interesting about it? Well, you can think of a project as a sort of collection. Project is sometimes 
a little difficult to wrap your mind around, but think of the end product like a collection. You have now have a collection of things in this very weirdly specific example, a collection of post offices that you photographed. It doesn't need to be you don't it doesn't have to be post offices. No, I'm pretty I just, sure it does. I wanted it I wanted it as an example. Okay. It doesn't have to have a more profound meaning, but if you're passionate about something like post offices, photography can help spread awarenesses. I believe June is Post Office Awareness Month. <laughs> Ask yourself, why did you decide to focus on the project? You know, really dig into it. One of the, one of the, I mean, and seriously, one of the fun things about doing projects or these collections is, is learning a little bit about yourself in them. You come up with an idea, maybe just from things you've already photographed, and you know, you put it together. Like, okay, I've got like a dozen photos of of this certain thing, and you're like, well. I'm obviously attracted to things like that. So I want to shoot mm -hmm. some more of that and dig into it. And you can kind of dig into your own brain and see what's going on in there. You mm -hmm. know, you can try to figure out like why you decided to, like what's going on? Why am I taking so many pictures of post offices? Why would I do that? But it's also fun to to give yourself parameters a little bit to help to help foster your creativity. Maybe it's, it's mid-century post offices or mm -hmm. post offices in a county that you don't live in. Mm -hmm. You know, is this maybe a gateway to something bigger? Like in your example, you started taking photographs of post offices in your county, but then you branched out and shot photographs of post offices in every county of your state, which actually, it's, it's, it seems silly, but there's obviously something more going on there. You know, you're, you're visiting these places that you wouldn't have otherwise visited. It's mm -hmm. a, a gateway of sorts. A lot of post office are post offices were on main streets that are not main streets anymore as well. So you you end up going to places in, in towns that you might have not even known about, which is really cool. That is true. We had a great post office in town on main street and they fucking closed it down. I was in, I don't know, it's like a bar now or something, which pisses me off oh, no. even more. Um, because now, you know, I can't walk to the post office. I have to drive there and that really sucks. But you can walk to the uh, bar. So win-win? No, okay. I I don't know. I like the old post offices. I definitely have a little special, I don't know, special place in my heart for them. <laughs> I, clearly you do. The one uncontrollable thing is time. And often I let it slip away from me. Try to take advantage of your time when you have it. Tired? Grab a coffee or maybe a piece of chocolate. Write about your findings and plan the next outing. I'm not necessarily saying you need to do an extended, like intense project. You can do a weekend project or even a roll of film, shoot puddles or rearview mirrors, whatever. The possibilities are plentiful. Now put all your images together and let your eyes glaze over while you decide to trim down the yeses and the noes. What do you like? What do you not like? What catches your eye the most and the least? This is a practical exercise for our minds. Don't forget to give yourself a few moments to do what you love this summer. Pick up that camera and take a picture. And so we few, we happy few, we band of photographers. For they today that exposes their film with me shall be my comrade. Shoot they formats large or small this day 
we photo walk together. And lazy photographers, the world over now abed, shall think themselves accursed that they expose nothing here and hold their gold two hundred cheap, while any speaks that they shot with us all through a lens. Today we are interviewing our new best friend, Taylor. She's a film photographer from Minnesota, focusing on the idea of home and revisiting previous chapters in her life. We've both admired her work for a long time, and when sorting out a guest for this episode, we both independently picked Taylor. So let's give her a call. Hello. Hi. Oh, great. I can hear you guys wonderfully. Hey. Oh, <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. We are absolutely stoked to have you on and talk about your amazing photography. So thank you so much. Thank you both so much for having me on here. Of course. For anybody that's not familiar, tell us a little bit about yourself and how long you've been photographing. Well, I have been photographing off and on throughout my whole life. It really started when I was capturing moments with the VHS camcorder in the 90s. And that led (laughs) to like the smaller camcorders with the small cassettes. I would create little movies with my friends. It was pretty quickly when I learned that you could create stills with that camcorder. And that was the first time that, that that I was creating images artistically. Um, and my dad, he's he's been a big influence. He and my uncle Alan both have been amateur photographers in their life. And mm-hmm. I think that I just kind of grew up observing that. I eventually did get a digital camera at some point, but it never really stuck. So fast forward to like four years ago is when I found film photography and started shooting film exclusively. So your work it has a very unique style, very cohesive feel to it. What's the biggest influence behind your style? Much of my life has not made sense to me. And I have often felt like a viewer outside of my body. It takes me longer to understand and process and really digest something. And so a balanced composition makes sense to me. Capturing an image to use later on is a perfect way for me to remember something that I just wasn't really there for. (laughs) And I think this relationship to film and longing for sense is where that cohesive feeling might be coming from. Uh, How have you fit film and the analog process into your style that is obviously effortless? (laughs) (laughs) My style feels collaborative. And that is specific to film. And to explain this a little further, I view myself at the center of taking an exposure. Like it's me, the film, the lens, the body, the environmental situation, the weather conditions. If I'm shooting expired, it's unpredictable. If I'm shooting a portrait, the subject can create something so precious for me. There are lens flares and dancing light and like wind. It's a lot of moving parts that are hopefully in sync and I'm just a component along with the rest of those things. And I'm sure this idea will evolve as I evolve as a photographer, but that's just how I see it right now as like Mm. this collective thing. 
I love that. I think that's beautiful. Between you and everything. <laughs> the way that I see it is like, I feel like there's technical photographers and then there's the emotional photographers. And and it's such a can be such a gray area too. It's not it's not black or white. It's okay. maybe a spectrum where you're like on this side or you're on, on okay, this I, side I, I more. I could absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I, I think I fall right in the middle and I'm perfectly balanced. <laughs> when I look at her pictures, the first thing I think of is if I close my eyes and open them, I'm in the picture or I could see that. Like it you feel like you're inside the space. Yeah. Thank you so much. It honestly means a lot. I feel very at home. I think we shoot a lot of the same scenes. And sometimes I, yeah. I think we've shot like identical scenes, like the mm -hmm. identical locations. And I feel very at home. And so when you said like how you take your pictures and it's very opposite of how I do, and we're arriving at what I feel is a, a very similar feel and, and where I feel very at home, I was like, oh, that's so interesting that somebody can have that different of a take on the same scene and come up with like roughly a picture within the same neighborhood that, that I'm doing. Yeah. It's, it's two different approaches yeah. with, you know, a similar result. I started seeing your photos and I saw like the North Dakota ones and I'm like, damn it. She's making me a fan of North Dakota and I don't like this. <laughs> well, up there in Northwestern North Dakota it is like another world. It it's the place where I can take like my breath. Like I feel like I hold it in the cities and then I'm out there and it's flat land and you can see for three miles around you in every direction. Mm -hmm. That's home. Yeah. You know, that's what's in my heart for sure. You grew up in North Dakota. Yeah. You moved away. You now live in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. How did moving away from your home state affect your style? Well, before I moved, I was in really bad shape. <laughs> I was disconnected and it was necessary that I leave North Dakota in order to seek uh, professional help. In North Dakota, you don't really have those resources to mental health and addiction. And this is a huge problem for rural communities, as I'm sure you're well aware. Yeah. Um, but I moved away uh, four years ago and then I started revisiting sometime after that. Mm -hmm. And when I first started revisit, revisiting, I, I soon realized that in going back, it often feels like seeing it for the first time, which is so strange. It was hard to see anything at all while I was so disconnected when I was there. Yeah. And I can see it now fully as a whole and connected person to the earth and to myself. And I think that that experience has created the foundation for my style. Okay. So... You are, you, you said you're going back to North Dakota and actually right now you're, you're packing to literally go back to North Dakota for a weekend to do some shooting. Oh, fun. Yeah. Quite literally. Yeah. Yes. I'm in the middle of packing and oh it's chaotic and it's really exciting. <laughs> Part of me thinks that what's drawing me back is my unfinished business there. Mm -hmm. And I first left abruptly in adolescence. And I think that in going back, I'm still being taught some life lessons. And I think that I'm still peeling back or uncovering pieces of life from that adolescence that I left. You know, it's always going to be home. And there's so much beauty there that I have not seen. And the prairie is my taste and aesthetic, whether I like it or not. <laughs> I did not choose this. 
Now you're going back to North Dakota, but have you, you, do you shoot your hometown? I attempted to shoot my hometown once and my idea just isn't all there yet. I might one day, but um, there's just been so much change with the oil field activity and things are always changing. And like right now they're building a new Taco Bell and it's like, you know, big, <laughs> exciting yep. news for, for that town <laughs> and, and me too. I'm, I'm actually honestly a little excited. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Let's talk about the abandoned homes and buildings. So can you kind of tell us what draws you to them? I grew up around them and exploring, the exploring part is actually an inherited passion. Ooh. My cat's doing the meowing thing outside. Oh, so cute. It sounds adorable. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, so my mom's the one that got me into exploring abandoned places. She started this when I was really young We'd visit the farm. She'd take me off in the four-wheeler and she'd go and look for like little glass bottles and just, you know, really old things that are just stuck in a field somewhere. When I first revisited four years ago, she took me out. My uncle took me out and we all just, they just showed me the land around. It was so exciting. Like it was kind of a little bit of a stormy day. So I was getting stormy clouds in the photos. I think I was even shooting like Lomo Chrome Purple or something. (laughs) And I got like cows and it it was a really cool thing. So now when Corey and I visit together and she's also there, she'll come with us. And she's like the first in the door. That's awesome. (laughs) She's like so wild. I think what draws me to the abandoned places is their history and something that feels untapped. If I can, I will dive into the history of them. There's been often times where it's available to me and there's a lot of times that it's not. Yeah. A lot of these old abandoned schoolhouses, you just kind of have to guess. We explored San Haven Sanitarium, and that's in kind of the east, northern part of the state of North Dakota, mm-hmm. up there by the border. I found out after that I explored it that my grandfather was being treated there for t- tuberculosis. Oh, really? Really? And this was at the exact time that my mother was being born, that he was in San Haven. Oh, wow. wow. And so I found that out afterwards and I was like wow this is wild and now you can't go into San Haven like oh, it's being torn down we all have different I don't know, rituals or or things that we do when we see a place generally I think for you uh it, it is you see something abandoned and it's just like well I'm gonna stop but what happens then like you you stop the car and there is a place you don't know if there's a photo there yet but how do you find that well it depends on how big the place is mm-hmm. So we explore and shoot at the same time. The the thing that I do specifically when I'm on a like a farmstead that has all the different like barns, mm-hmm. well the barn, the house, the windmill, like all those different components and then like I'll see like the pump jack so I can easily like find so many different shots because there's so many different components and you want like the tractor, like the farm equipment with mm-hmm. like the house in the back and like I do it all because I don't know if my mind's going to change and I only have this one time to be here. I'll take anything that feels right in that moment. Smart. It's it's a good idea. Um, this one lady saw me pull in and she was driving by. I think she probably had the farm. St- she probably has the land, but she had the farm up the hill and she stopped and I immediately walked over to her car and she was just kind of like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm here to take pictures. And she was like, oh, okay. Um, 
please don't write about the ghost in here. Like a lot of people are writing about it being haunted and just like, that's all I ask. Just don't do that. And I said, <laughs> okay, I didn't. Don't, don't write about the ghost. Until now. So we were, we're talking about it a little bit, but when do you feel comfortable entering an abandoned building? So a few things make me feel more comfortable. Like if it's public land that sometimes is set aside specifically for hunting, um, they'll have like houses scattered on that land and right between in North Dakota and Montana actually is where we found um, some good spots, but yeah, nothing posted on the building, no trespass. I just stay away from that. It's, yeah. I'm not here to disrupt, but if it's really rural, it's visibly like unkept. There's grass growing. I know that nobody just mowed yesterday. We just always stay aware of our surroundings. How many shots would you say that you take on average in a single location? It definitely depends. Uh, we jam pack our North Dakota trips. I could shoot anywhere from two rolls to maybe just two shots at a location if it's a big abandoned facility, then it's easy to go for go through four to five rolls for me. Um, it's pretty typical that like on a trip to North Dakota specifically, that I'll shoot, like I think last time it was 16 rolls in three days, which, nice. you know, that's between 35 and medium format. This trip, I'm going to be incorporating four by five. Ooh. So we'll see what, you know, what happens there. Oh, that's exciting. Most of your photos are, are pretty rural. Do you have a different approach when you shoot cities? I think so. Um, when I'm shooting rurally, I normally don't have to worry about anyone else. I'm easily capturing and composing what I see. Uh, whereas in the city, I think I'm more challenged to create images rather than to just capture what's going on around me. Between the polarization of the two, rural and city, I'm probably finding a middle ground with capturing and creating those two concepts. Hmm. Hmm. So you said you're shooting large format now, too. How different do you find it compared to shooting medium and 35? Surprisingly enough, uh, large format has been by far the easiest for me to pick up. I'm glad I waited four years because four years ago, it would have overwhelmed me. Um, now I'm like happily overwhelmed, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. With all the details and the options. I love it. It feels totally unreal, like that I'm getting to do this. I always feel like I get to do this. And it's wildly different in that you have so many moving parts with large format. You don't get that with anything else. I describe it as like a different hobby altogether. You know, it's yeah. like a different thing. I mean, you kind of have like the same, especially on Instagram, you have like the same results, which is a tiny picture. But the how you get that tiny picture is very different from how like a person shooting <laughs> like a point and shoot would get that tiny picture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You said, did you say easy? I said it's been the easiest yeah. camera for me to pick up and understand right off the bat. Why? That's so interesting. I don't know. It's home. It's <sighs> home for me. Like Shooting that. large format was always the goal. And now that I'm here, it's like, oh, this is exactly what I was supposed to be doing. Do you think that has something to do, is it with just the camera or is it like the community surrounding it that you've fallen in with? A mixture of both, I think. Well, what is the community that you've found? I um, have two really good friends here that I've met and collaborated with, and they are both large format photographers. So I think that just being around them and picking up, you know, all the information that they have to give, 
I feel like I'm probably one of the luckiest people in the world right now for that. So do you think, um, well, both like the large format and the, the community or either or, I guess, change? How does that change how you see your subjects? I feel like it already has been changing how I have been seeing my subjects because it's a whole different shooting experience, like we said earlier. Now I think about how I can manipulate the image with movements. And that part is something that is totally new. And it does feel like a really a different hobby than just standard 35 and 120 shooting. And it's inspired me to do more portrait work. It's kind of always been something that I wanted to do, but I feel like there's something about four by five that is that feels more natural to introduce portrait work into. I know that like, you know, Instagram gets a bad rap all the time. There are so many wonderful connections that could be made. So how has Instagram done that for you? Well, I feel that like the women that I've connected with on Instagram are so badass in the film community. And I have a couple of specific examples of how the women in film have directly affected my experience with film. But the first one is a story. It's about watching my friend Mary Kate do an Instagram live where she's developing film. And I'm like, all right, yeah, let's check it out and see how she does it. So she's stationed up at her sink, cameras propped up, and I think she was at her farmhouse in Montana. So there she was talking to herself and the camera, and she's got her cowboy hat on or <laughs> calvey hat on, as she likes to call it. <laughs> and she finishes up <laughs> developing, grabs the camera and her wet negatives, She's like running up the stairs with this stuff and she sets the camera down on the ground and you can see like a random sock that's just like sitting on the floor and she's got her wet negatives and a sock and she grabs the sock and she starts drying her wet negatives with the sock and then tapes it to the wall. And you can see that there's like six other rolls that are taped up to the wall like this. And I was like, holy shit, this girl is so badass that she's just like, going with it you know what I mean like and that gave me the the decision that I was like gonna stop sitting on my Ilford's kit you know because I thought I had to have all the fancy gear and have it all together everything that I was seeing so far was male photographers on YouTube with really fancy setups you know and there she was just being like let's go for it I think that that single moment where I'm a viewer in her world taught me that it was okay to be a messy chaotic non-linear artist and my other example is Rebecca and I I don't know if Rebecca is on your radar she and Kate are huge inspirations and we we do collaborate but before I met Rebecca she had sent me a message on Instagram asking to take my portrait and this was back in 2020 when we had COVID so we met socially distanced in a community garden in Minneapolis near her home Mm -hmm. and she's setting up she had just got this monorail and it's like big and intimidating and I already know Rebecca's work I'm a huge fan she's setting up the shot I think Corey was sitting for her and she's got her hand meter and she's got her phone meter and she's just kind of like all right well this looks like this and this looks like this and she looks over at me and she's like you know I don't really know how to meet her and then click she like takes the portrait (laughs) and I was like what here's Rebecca the hands down coolest and best photographer I have ever met at this point. And she just told me that she didn't know how to meet her. Honestly, when I think of these moments, like it makes me want to cry because I don't think that they realize how those little tiny things have made me feel so included in their world. Mm-hmm. 
I have just started working with Kate and you've had her on and she's another great example of vulnerability and openness. You know, she's incredible and I love watching her work. She's made me feel really at ease when I'm sitting for a portrait for her. You know, I'm learning how how to do that myself with people and her work is so honest and entirely of a whole new world. It inspired me heavily to try my own self-portrait work, and I can't wait to shoot and collaborate with her and Rebecca again. We're very lucky to have people like MK and Rebecca and Kate. I don't think I'd be pushed forward without seeing people just like feel free to like do things a little different. Everyone is an artist until somebody tells them that they're not. Yeah. That's a Lennon quote. Vladimir or John? John. Oh, okay. Thank you so much for talking with us. It was amazing. And yes, thank uh, you. tell us all about your trip, please. I will. We'll talk <laughs> yes, have some fun. You're leaving tomorrow, right? Yes, tomorrow morning. As of this recording. Awesome. That's wild. Have a good time. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you again. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. The Mamiya RB67 is the greatest medium format camera ever produced. It is fully manual, requires no battery, and can double as an impact weapon. Weighing only seven pounds, the RB67 is ideal for hiking, a night on the town, or just relaxing at home. And that's what we're doing now. We're not out shooting. No, we're recording a podcast and we will tell you everything we can about the RB67. We don't really do the whole gear talk thing, but fortunately, we brought along a few friends who, well, they don't really do it either, but... They'll drop by and shortly tell you about their experiences with the greatest medium format camera ever produced. Mamiya, as a company, was founded in 1940, right before their entry into World War II. I guess Japan didn't have all that much going on then. They wouldn't come up with the RB67 for another 30 years, but did start their photographic journey with a medium format 6x6 folder called the Mamiya 6. Starting with what seems like their sixth version of the Mamiya was potentially confusing, though not nearly as confusing as the numbering system they attached to their flagship camera. Over the course of the next decade and a half, they introduced them in this order. One, two, three, four, five, K, four B, K2, four S, and finally, P. Following all that nonsense, they understandably got into 35mm with the fascinating Magazine 35, which had interchangeable backs, just like the RB67 would in the years to come. This allowed photographers to switch from one emulsion to another in mid-roll, a thing we RB67 users take for granted. The 35mm cameras didn't really do so well, but Mamiya brought forward the interchangeable backs idea to their press camera series. We're skipping a bit here, so sorry Mamiya Flex fans. If you can stomach rangefinders, this is actually a really fun series to get into. Unfortunately, we have trust issues with rangefinders. Depending on the model, you could switch frame sizes from 6 4.5 to 6 by 6 or 6 by 7 and finally 6 by 9. They had various backs for Polaroid and sheet film too. It's honestly tempting to get into these and maybe someday we will. The press camera was introduced in 1960 and wandered around in various variations until the mid-80s which means they coexisted with the RV67, which would be introduced in 1970. By the end of the 60s, Mia's lineup consisted of the press camera, 
the Mamiya C series. That was a fancy pants twin lens reflex camera with interchangeable lenses and then some fairly boring 35 millimeter SLRs. But then 1970 happened and so did the RB67. Just who designed it and the true reasoning behind its design is probably buried away in a Japanese language history of the company, if such a thing even exists. What Mamiya came up with was pretty glorious. Like the Mamiya press camera and even the Mamiya 35 magazine, the RB67 used interchangeable backs, but the magic was in the RB, which stood for rotating back. While the press cameras were relatively small and could easily be turned on their side for a vertical image, the RB67 with its waist level finder made it even easier with the rotating back. If you wanted to shoot a landscape and then a portrait, all you had to do was turn the back onto its side. The RB67 is a true SLR. What you're seeing through the huge viewfinder is what is coming through the lens, unlike both the rangefinders and twin lens reflexes that came before it. The RB was introduced with a slew of lenses from the wide 50 millimeter to the long 360 millimeter. And if you were into gear in the form of accessories, well, the RB67 is second to none. Even the Hasselblad folks should be jealous. You had five different viewfinders as well as five different finder screens. I mean, do you want split prism, a grid, a crosshairs? Mamiya's got you covered. It has a wide array of adapters for various film backs like Polaroid and Graflex, as well as adapters so you could use the old press camera backs. There were even backs for two by three sheet film. You had deluxe grips, sports finders, extension tubes, lens hoods, flash brackets, even a fucking aluminum briefcase to hold all your gear. We got more places than we've got stuff. We're gonna have to buy more stuff. And Mamiya marketed the hell out of this one. They leaned heavily upon its modular capabilities. Nearly every part of the body was interchangeable with some other part that you could buy. The introductory model with a 90 millimeter lens retailed for $600. And that's about $4,500 in today's money. Through the early 70s, the price would decrease a bit or another lens would be thrown in, but you wouldn't dip too far below 500. A 1970 brochure insisted that the RB was an important new tool for any serious photographer, no matter what other camera he already owns. They were even fine with flat-out lying about their product, as they continued. The RB67 is remarkably compact and beautifully balanced for handheld shooting. Remarkably compact compared to what? Weighing in at seven pounds, it was by far the heaviest commercially available medium format camera of its day, though the Fuji GX680 would eventually beat it by two whole pounds. Maybe it was remarkable that it was as heavy as it was given the size, which really isn't even compact. In fact, it was likely also the largest commercially available medium format camera of its day. Again, the massive GX would beat it, but that wouldn't happen until the 90s. Is it beautifully balanced for handheld shooting? That's something that most studio photographers who typically mounted the RB67 on a tripod might disagree with. And to be honest, if you show up at a camera walk with an RB67, the comments you'd receive are absolutely not, my goodness, that sure is one remarkably compact camera you got there. But the brochure gets at least one thing right. Few SLRs, regardless of size, can equal it for its smooth, vibrationless operation. It exhibits the ruggedness and precision that assures reliable performance in professional use. So, today, we will be talking to you about the RB67. Vanya, <laughs> can you remember how 
you got yours. Yes, I do, actually. I would visit my local camera shop, Silvio's Cameras, and there was a case of medium format cameras. And I would go and visit them kind of like a zoo. (laughs) I would just go look at them and, you know, stare at the animals, all the ones I couldn't afford. Usually either before or after I was picking up chemicals or film on that day. Specifically this day, there was a woman behind the camera that I think was just kind of doing some summer work with them because I haven't seen her since, honestly. And she was like, hey, do you want to like look at some cameras? And I was like, oh my God, I would love to have one of these cameras one day. Like, I really like this one. And it was the RB67, which is like the biggest one. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she's like, yeah, let me like bust it out. And it was really exciting. And she kind of like went through it with me. And she actually worked under a professional photographer. So she showed me how to load it because she was kind of reminiscing like, oh yeah, I remember sitting like on the field and just loading back after back of these things, (laughs) which is kind of cool. Sylvia noticed that I was staring at this beautiful camera and he came up and was like, oh, I will give you a really good deal on this if you really want to take it. And I was kind of roped in. There was no way that I could say no. And it was a really good price. And he gave me a ridiculous amount of accessories that I can't use, like the the old Polaroid uh, peel apart back and a grip, all sorts of stuff. It was love at first sight, honestly. It was really difficult to bring it inside the house and pretend like I had this camera forever. So I kind of had to fess up and be like, okay, yeah, I kind of bought a new camera. And (laughs) also it's very small and compact. It is. They even say so themselves. How about you? Do you remember when you got your RB? I do. It was, I think, in June. It was, uh, I was about to leave for on one of my month-long photo trips that I kind of based my life around. I had just gotten my first 4x5 field camera. It was the Intrepid. I hadn't even shot it yet. Uh, so I figured that getting a new and probably very complicated 6x7 camera at the same time was a great idea. <laughs> I've been shooting 6x6 and 6x9, but this, I didn't like the square. The square was too square for me, and the 6x9 was too wide. So I was looking at something kind of in between, which is 6x7. And the Mamiya came up and a lot in conversation. I looked on Craigslist and I found a body and a back and two lenses for $275. Wow. Yeah, which is, I think, $4,500 in today's money. (laughs) (laughs) So so I met a college guy in the parking lot of a local park and made a deal, you know, like one does. He even had a roll of Portra 160 already loaded into it just for me. The camera just wasn't his style. It wasn't for him. And honestly, I really wasn't sure it was for me, but uh, I would soon find out. So we asked the same question of five different folks, and let's let's uh, let's see who we asked. Hey, this is Jess Hobbs. You can find me on Instagram as Jess Hobbs Photo, on YouTube as Jess Hobbs, and I'm also one of the co-hosts of the Classic Camera Revival podcast. Hi, this is Dave Walker. I'm Dave the Walker eighty on Instagram. Hey, this is Allie. You may know me from my YouTube channel or my blog called Allie's Vintage Camera Alley, where I review and shoot with a bunch of different film cameras from my collection. Okay, I am Taylor, also known as Taylarlar on Instagram, and I am a film photographer. Hey all, this is Dan Tree. Uh, my Instagram is Dan Tree Photo. That's where you can find most of my work. And I just wanted to talk about the RB67. So it's Jess, Dave, Allie, Taylor, and Dan. You will undoubtedly recognize some of them. Taylor, obviously, if you've been paying attention. Dan as well, and Jess, if you listen to 
episode of ours a couple episodes ago. So first, thank you all for doing a little bit of recording for us. It, it was a really big help. It was kind of a, a weird thing to put all of this together, but it all came together in the end. So let's learn about how they got their RBs. We'll start with Jess. Well, we just spent our eighth anniversary together and I bought it in probably the most Canadian way possible behind the dumpster of a Tim Hortons restaurant. If you're unfamiliar with Tim Hortons, it's basically just a coffee chain across Canada like a Dunkin Donuts. And the guy that I bought it from was super sketchy. He was also a construction guy and was ripping apart an old photo studio and bought up the inventory. So he had a box of just different camera parts, the RB and lenses and stuff, but also some other weird things that I couldn't really recognize. So basically, I bought it out of the trunk of his car. It felt like I was doing a weird drug deal, like here's the cash, here's the camera kind of thing. But I ended up buying the body, two backs, and the 90 millimeter lens for 240 Canadian at the time. And Allie? I haven't had this behemoth for a very long time, but I had a really crazy experience getting this camera, one that took almost a year, which I've never experienced before trying to get a camera for my collection. First, I tried a Mamiya buy and sell Facebook page, and I found one I liked, and I paid the guy right away, and he seemed really nice. He seemed a little bit reluctant, actually, to... Uh, give it to me after he sold it. Maybe it was seller's remorse, but weeks passed and he never sent it. After many, many excuses that he gave me, eventually I finally got him to just give me my money back because he clearly was never going to send it. Uh, Next I tried eBay uh, and this one that claimed to be in perfect working order, but of course you know how that goes on eBay. Um, When I got it, it did not prove to be in working order. Um, So I had to send it back. Uh, Then I tried stores, different storefronts, and after several rude experiences with shop owners, I was ready to give up. It started to feel like this just wasn't meant to happen. It almost seemed like people didn't want to sell to me. It was starting to feel a little bit personal. Um, So I almost gave up, but I found an affordable one on eBay after a while. Uh, It had one stipulation. It had a damaged uh, and stuck filter ring on it. There was no glass in the ring. It was just the ring left after what looked like the owner must have really was hacking away at it and trying to get it off. But luckily it hadn't affect the lens or the camera itself or the pictures that it produced. So I decided to take a chance since it was affordable. And Dan. A few years ago, I got into 4x5 and I would always hear from people that, you know, 6 by 7s a pretty similar format. And so I picked up a Pentax 6.7 and absolutely fell in love with the film size and then was worried because the Pentax is uh, electric and the RB is not. So I decided to pick one up and got a pretty good deal on a kit with a couple lenses and the body and two film backs. Dave? In about 2007, I was taking um, a City and Guilds photography evening class after work at a, a local college. But we were doing lots of stuff in the darkroom and I was, I was getting really into it. So I decided to ask around online to see if there was anyone getting rid of any darkroom equipment so I could set up at home. Um, I put some feelers out on uh, FreeCycle and I got a message from a few people and one of them said, my brother's a professional photographer and he's getting rid of all his, all his film stuff. So uh, I drove over there and went to meet him. Absolutely right. He was having a, a proper clear out. I got loads of free darkroom gear and uh, processing tanks and 
before I went, he said, uh, I don't suppose you're interested in this camera I'm, I'm selling. And I'd never seen one before. So he showed me what it was. And it was the, the RB67. It was well used and the, you know, the focusing screen's got a little crack in the corner, but it doesn't affect its operation. But it was um, obviously a decent looking camera. So I, I agreed to buy it. And I think it cost me £100 in about 2007. And finally, Taylor. The one that I got in 2020 was shipped to me by the seller as just the camera in a box. And it survived. No protective packaging, (laughs) nothing like that. Now, we ask them, essentially, how'd you get it? Which is sort of just like, oh, I know, I I picked one up and now I have it. For both of us, that's kind of the story. It's neat that uh, all of them had something weird happen. Yeah. Yeah. Is this normal? I mean, mine was a pretty pretty easy deal, and yours just picked up in a shop. That's kind of how you buy cameras. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, I definitely like swooned over it for a while. Of course, but it wasn't like the story when I went to get the Yashika mat for my friend Rachel for her birthday, and the guy that sold it to me had like super long fingernails. <laughs> I once bought an Atari from a guy who had a lot of Nazi memorabilia. Oh, my God. It was the question of throw the money at him and escape. You have a Nazi Atari? (laughs) So we're all film photographers, but, you know, from different backgrounds, different countries. I think some of them are from Canada. Who knew? But obviously we all all love our RB67s. But what do we love about them? And that's the question that really intrigued me with all this. Why do we like these big hulking things. Vanya, why do you love yours? They are heavy and unwieldy. And I think that's why a lot of people get rid of them. I think so. And it's such a shame, or at least it used to be. So you could get them at a very like ridiculously affordable price. I'm not sure it's like that anymore. No, they run about $500. Okay. That's still under market price for when they first came That's out. That's true. So. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty amazing. So it's actually still a really good price. What a horrible investment that would have been. <laughs> but no, but that's the thing. It is an investment to me because it is, it's such a beast of a camera, but it's so reliable. It's such a great camera. I, I've had such good luck with it. And again, yeah, no batteries. It really does make a difference. It's a workhorse. I think so. So let's go to everybody else. We'll start with Dave. You know, from the first time I, I used it, I picked it up. The weight in your hands and, and the viewpoint, looking down into the big bright screen and into the little magnifier, the mechanical effort you have to put into using the thing, it's its just magic, really. I, even the noises it makes as you crank the mirror up and, and wind the, the backs, it really feels like proper photography. And to Taylor. I love that it's basically a handheld block of concrete. And I can be very hard on my cameras. But shooting the RB67, I love the loud slap of the shutter. It's very satisfying. How about Dan? So all in all, I, I didn't like it as much as I thought I would. But then when I got my images from it, it was tipped me the other direction because I at the very least had a couple shots or one shot from each roll that completely blew me away when everything went right. So I am going to keep it based on just those those few photos that I really liked. And also, again, you know, that fully mechanical is nice. Allie? 
in the time I've been shooting with it. I'm always in awe with the quality and the character that the system and its C-Core lenses produce. Uh, for me, shooting with a camera like this is all about the experience and the inspiration it gives me. And finally, Jess. I mean, what's not to love about this camera? That glass, especially that 180mm lens. I don't use it that often, but it is one of my favorite lenses. I love the negative size. I love being able to print perfect 8x10s straight from the 6-7 negatives. There's just so much to love about this camera. So basically, people seem to like the bulkiness of it. Oh, yeah. They enjoy how compact it is. <laughs> it's got Volvo vibes. I'm telling it you, does. everybody loves a Volvo. Everybody loves a Mami RB67. Everybody. Every single Basically. person. That yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, image quality came into play and, you know, that's that's wonderful. Also, sound. Oh, gosh, the click. Yeah. I've talked about the click before. We have. It's a huge deal. And the RB is, no one could ever take a louder slap. <laughs> It slaps, yo. It slaps. Well said. We heard from everybody, but let's hear from Eric. What do you love about it? I think I love my ability to figure out the RB, and I'll talk a little bit more on that later. I love that such a complex camera can become like so simple to use. It's become ergonomic, and maybe not like ergonomic in a real way, but in a way that I'm used to. I've I've gotten used to the camera. And like others said, it's, it's like a ritual using it. All the things you have to do, like to coax into taking a photo, all of those things are wonderful. While the Mamiya RB67 is the best medium format camera ever produced, it is not exactly a perfect camera. Of course, there's no such thing, really. There, there really isn't. But Vanya, what, um, is there something you dislike about it? Anything? If I had to pick something, I would... I would probably say the weight and the size, which is hilarious because that it's all weight and size. The image quality is fantastic. So I deal with the weight and I deal with the size of it. Um, but that makes it a little bit harder to say, take it on a plane or something <laughs> like that. It wouldn't be like my first choice, unfortunately. But as far as uh, photo quality, it's usually one of my go-to cameras for, for anything, even like just commercial use. If I'm taking it out for a walk, a short walk, it's fine. But if I'm shooting with it all day, I'm going to fill it the next day for sure. Absolutely. So let's see what the rest of them had to say. We'll start with Allie. If I had to choose a downside to the RB, it would definitely be its weight. It's not a camera I can freely just walk around with, but I guess that's why it was mainly used in the studio setting back in the day. And Dave. I had some light leaks at the back, I guess because it's got a rotating back, so there's things moving around, and I, it was letting light in somewhere. So before the lockdowns, I'd started replacing all the seals, and that's, uh, as Eric knows, that's a that's a big uh, sticky job. Um, and I was about halfway through uh, when all the lockdowns started, and I'd been doing it at work in my office. Um, so I, I just packed it all up and brought it home. And I, I unfortunately I haven't got around to finishing the job, but um, this has inspired me to to get it done. It's a sticky job, but someone has to do it. How about Jess? I absolutely despise that left-hand grip. I am really glad for all the left-handers out there who actually finally have an accessory that they can use comfortably, but I'm right-handed and I just cannot 
get on board with that left hand grip it drives me nuts i've used it once um i'm probably gonna keep it anyways just in case but i don't think i'm gonna be using it very often uh and the other thing that i really hate are the notoriously bad backs for their terrible light leaks i even redid the whole light seals on both of my backs and i still have to tape it up every single time with electric tape just to make sure i avoid light leaks at all costs still a sticky job how about Dan? You know, found it like quite a bit bigger and heavier, more awkward than the Pentax. One of the main things is like carrying it around um, wasn't nearly as easy, I don't think, as the uh, Pentax was. So I also found the RB67 a little more awkward to advance the film and just a lot of extra controls that I'm just uh, still trying to wrap my head around. It's also great that you can do macro, which I thought was awesome. That's very similar to when I was shooting 4x5. And finally, Taylor. There actually isn't anything that I hate about uh, the RB67, but my back dislikes it after hiking for like seven miles and also okay i can't forget that the dark slide can be a pain sometimes so the pain in the back and the pain from the backs in the form of light leaks for the most part how about you eric um i mean i do wish it were a little lighter i i'm not the buffest dude in the world hard to believe i know but it is a pain to carry around i i also wish that the the double like the double cable for the shutter release, you know, that thing for like the long exposures, it's proprietary. And I don't understand how it works or why it works. And I wish I could figure that out. I let you use mine. What happened? It's beyond me. I cannot figure it out. <laughs> I don't know how it works. And at this point, I'm fine with that. Without the RB67, our work would likely be drastically different. While it's the same 6x7 format as the Pentax 6.7, the camera is so differently built that you never really get the same angle. And both of our work is all about lower angles. We, we shoot very low for some reason, and I'm influenced by you. The waist-level finder is a big reason behind that, but being incredibly short doesn't hurt either. You're basically on the ground. I'm, I, I am. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> he has like two feet of leg, so he's I, he's right slightly there. Slightly more than two feet of two and two and a half feet. Come on, let's just not be crazy. He's all torso. I'm not just kidding. That. Apart from the waist level finder, are there any other ways that the RB brings something to our work that other cameras couldn't? Vanya? Well, the confidence in shooting waist level and nailing the focus because the ground glass is super bright and super big, a lot bigger than the Hasselblad. This sounds like pretentious. I have two Hasselblads. One's, one screen is a little brighter than the other. I think the one that you have has the darker screen. It does, yeah. So it can be really, really difficult to shoot at waist level because you just don't know <laughs> if it's like 100% in focus or not. So yeah, I really do enjoy the larger ground glass on it. it. It gives me confidence just knowing that camera and feeling confident in, in the shot. I still hold my breath though, and I've almost passed out regularly shooting that camera. No other camera brings that, that passing out joy? No. Perfect. Well, let's see how the rest of them answered. We'll start with Dave! I think the things the RB67 bring that other cameras don't is, is just, it's sheer image quality, I think. And I don't know whether that's because you use it differently to other 
medium format cameras or you know something to do with the weight of it just kind of holds it very very steady but I've, I've had uh, tremendous results from it it really feels like a professional camera and I, I know it's it may be intended for a studio but out and about I love it and Taylor the RB brings to my work those big six seven images the big detail it was the biggest detail I had until I started large format I love the ability to transition from portrait to landscape it's like a little mini large format camera. Dan. I think the RB gives me a lot more control uh, than the Pentax does, which is awesome. Um, I may not shoot with it much. And then when I do shoot with it, I always have to look up how to use it again because <laughs> it is pretty different compared to some other cameras. I think all in all, I'll probably use it more for like studio work, portraits, and just more around the house rather than taking it out with me. Jess. One of my favorite things about it actually is that it focuses so close up. The bellows extend so far out that I can get in really detailed, you know, especially because I do a lot of woodland photography and there's lots of beautiful, tiny little details, sometimes on the floor or even up in the canopy. And the, the bellows system really just allows me to get in super, super close with my subjects. I also like to shoot a lot with my Yashica Mat 124G in the woods, but that has a minimum focus distance of one meter. So already there. I'm not getting in as close and I I just really like to be able to do that with the RB67 that my other cameras really just can't do. And lastly, Allie. Uh, Now I love to use it mostly for my still life photography, especially because it's so heavy. It's great up on a sturdy tripod, but also the, the bellows focus that it has is perfect for still life photos because I can get close without having to actually move the camera. And Eric. Well, the closest camera to the RB is probably the Fuji GX680 that we mentioned at the top. I actually thought about getting one of those nine pound bastards before, but they're like, they're all electronic and more machine now than man. They're incredibly unreliable as well. The RB brings the weight and and thus the gravitas and it does it with zero batteries or circuit board. It brings reliability. Hell, even the flaws, like the light seals on the backs, they're reliable in their failure. You know, they're going to go. Like we said, we don't really do gear talk. We're not going to bore you to tears, sleep, or death by foaming on and on about the bokeh of the Mamiya C-Core 3.5 127mm 50th anniversary lens. We don't really care. But there are a few things a bit more on the geary side that we should cover First, there were three RB67s. That's right. There was the OG RB, the RB67 Professional, which was released in 1970. It had all the bells and whistles we told you about at the top of the piece. Four glorious years later came the RB67 Professional S. The S came with a slightly redesigned focusing hood, a double exposure prevention thing, as well as focus lock. It also had a vertical versus horizontal indicator inside the viewing hood in case you were too lazy to look at the back of your camera. The Pro S reigned until 1990 when Mamiya thought it was an amazing idea to come out with the Professional SD. The Pro SD allowed you to use the Mamiya's new KL and L series lenses. To make this happen, they enlarged the lens mount on the body, making it necessary to buy an adapter to use your older Mamiya lenses. But this allowed for a slightly larger frame, giving the RB67 the ability to shoot 6x8 if you bought a 
by eight back for it. Mamiya continued to crank these out until 2004-ish. I guess that's when they discontinued the RB. It's hard to tell. They had for a while been hawking the RZ 6.7 line, and that lasted a full decade longer. We're not gonna get into that camera though. Not interested. The RZ was discontinued around 2014. Gear talk is what it is, but for us, the fun of photography is in photographing. The RB67 has such a personality that nearly everyone who has had it has stories to tell about shooting it. Do you have a story? Oh, like a favorite RB67 story? Yeah, I think I do, actually. I mean, I have several, obviously. Well, regale us. <laughs> I, it's hard because when we met up, we, we took a picture, like a, like a RB67 selfie with like both of our RBs together. And that was like kind of fun. That, that will be the cover for this episode, <gasps> by the way. Yay! Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Yeah. It's also in the back of our book. So I was like, okay, I have to pick something else. And I think I was, when I shot for Birdwell, I brought the RB67. I also brought my Pentax 645 because obviously that's like my water camera. So if I'm doing anything in the water, I was going to take that out. But I've decided that I, if anything is happening on land, the RB67 is what I'm shooting with. It has just done me so good. <laughs> I have just one of my most like favorite iconic pictures of my friend Christina underneath the pier with my red longboard. That was with the RB67. It was a foggy day. It was it was a little bit I was a little hesitant on the light. I didn't have a light meter with me, of course, because the RB doesn't have one, but I just trusted my instincts and trusted my camera and I don't really um feel the need to replace it with anything else. Yeah, it's heavy, but so what? If I can just pay Marley to load backs for me, that would be really helpful. I'm sure she would love to do that for I you. I know, I know. Because 10, obviously 10 photos when you're doing like photo shoot is not a lot of photos. So I am kind of like going through a ton of film. And that's the only thing I would say is the downfall of that. But I think I did pretty good. So let's see what our friends had to say. Let's start with... Jess. People just have no idea what that camera is. I can tell they're looking at me and they're like, is she a videographer? Is that a video camera? Is she someone famous? I've even seen people like twist around in their chairs in restaurant windows trying to figure out what it is I'm carrying. So it's always a really good conversation piece to have with me. And Allie. When I got it, I put a roll through it and I was so happy with the results and that it was working and just so relieved to finally have one that was working. But after a while, it started to bug me that that beat up ring was on there and it was keeping me from using my lens hood or using any filters if I wanted to in the future. So uh, my fiance and I tried uh, several attempts with different tools and finally with a lens vise and a filter wrench, we were able to get it off mostly she was able to get it off, but I was so happy with that. And Taylor. What I like is that it makes me feel large and in charge. You know, when I first got that, I was like, this is my baby that I like can carry everywhere I go. And I remember the first time I climbed on top of a car with it. Like I do that a lot because like I'm tall, but like I still need like that height. Like a lot of the times I just want to get up there. And the first time I climbed on top of a car with it, I had an image of Dorothea Lange. And it flashed through my mind where she's like sitting on a car with her big fucking camera. And finally, Dave. So um, I had a, a, a dentist appointment 
I had to have a, a molar drilled out and filled, um, and it was not fun at all. And my girlfriend at the time, uh, who's now my wife, she came with me to, you know, moral support um, while I had this this procedure. And obviously, I, I didn't want to look too wussy, so I, I had to try and um, pretend it wasn't hurting too much. And I, uh, I managed to meditate my way through the the dental appointment by imagining operating the the camera and all the different steps I had to do and all the right order and I went through you know again and again imagining I was using this camera to to shoot a whole roll of film and um amazingly it worked it, I I got through it and it wasn't too bad but uh, yeah that's the the strangest thing I've ever used a, an RB67 for well thanks uh for the stories <laughs> yes and finally obviously Eric tell us Tell us your memorable story with the RB. Well, I know I've told this story before, so I will be brief in a Polonius sort of way. <laughs> I don't think I shot the RB before my trip, so I was going into it totally blind. I basically knew how to load it and advance the film, and, and that was a kind of it. Also, I, th I thought that's all I really needed to know. But the whole time, it was just a pain in the ass. It was heavy. It was the least ergonomic thing ever. I didn't understand the sounds it was making, or even if it was taking a photo, I had no way to tell. The mirror in the body is pretty separate from the shutter and the lens, and that confounded the hell out of me. And then there was the whole mirror lockup thing, which is controlled on the lens. There's a setting on the lens marked N and M, letters that I associated with absolutely nothing at all. I had a feeling it had something to do with bypassing the mirror, but did like, did M mean mirror? And did N mean no mirror? It, I had no idea what they were talking about. Basically, I hated everything about it. So I made a decision. While shooting an intense lightning storm just north of Picture Canyon on the Comanche grasslands, I decided to sell it when I got home. Unless, unless the photos were way better than they should be. When I got home, about half of my rolls were lost due to the whole M versus N confusion. Uh, I was pissed. I was downtrodden. I was deflated and defeated. My four by five shots were, on the other hand, pretty, pretty okay. They're pretty okay. So I decided to sell it and focus on large format. I was clearly better at that. But as I developed my photos over the next month or so, I discovered that they were indeed way, way better than they should have been. I had no business taking photos this good. And that to me was a, maybe a reason to keep the camera, but not this camera. I decided to sell it anyway. It was just wasn't worth my extra trouble. But that's when I met you, Banya. One of our very first conversations was about me selling the RB. <laughs> she was very against the idea and through sheer force of will, she eventually convinced me just to, to give it another shot, try it for another year and see if I liked it. So I shot with it exclusively for like the rest of the fall and into the spring, I picked it up again. I shot it, and the more I shot it, the more I understood it and the more I really fell in love with this thing. Now it's fully a part of me, photographically speaking. I hate to travel without it, even when I'm hiking. Hell, I think it's it's hiked more miles with me than any other camera, possibly more than all of the other cameras combined, except for maybe the four by five. Oh, incidentally, the N means normal and the M means mirror up. And if your brain flips around things like mine does, that still helps not at all. So unless you have Mamiya's proprietary double shutter release cable, 
just keep it on end and you'll be fine. <laughs> it's, I just figured out if you have a lens stuck on it, that there's like this like super secret compartment hole that is underneath the skin of the camera where you can um, unlock the, the lens. They That's like it. put it in there. It's super. <laughs> and I mean, I've had this camera for years and I've n- I never knew it was there. No, I had no idea until you mentioned it to me a couple of weeks ago. I, you, <laughs> you mentioned it to me like I was supposed to know what you're talking about. Like, like you do, honestly. I know. And I, was like, I, do I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of this thing before. And I kind of thought it was like whatever Vanya's version of urban legend is. Mm-hmm. Like a daydream, I guess. But no. <laughs> no. It's the blue ribbon around your neck. <laughs> don't take it off or else my head will fall off. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The Mamiya RB67 was intended for professional photographers. While amateurs certainly bought them, this was a studio camera for studio photographers. Since the resurgence of film over a decade ago, the RB67 has become one of the most legendary medium format cameras for everyday photographers. Most film photographers cycle through cameras like Blanche cycled through men. Dorothy, I've just discovered a great new way to meet more men. More men? You're going to need a turnstile in your bedroom. (laughs) But maybe the RB67 is different. Vanya, would you ever give it up? Absolutely not. Unless it was like for a brand new in-box one. And then I would give it to another. I would give mine to another photographer, of course, because you have to you have to share (laughs) the the luck of the RB. So how about the rest of them? We'll start with Taylor. I don't anticipate getting rid of that tank. Maybe if it broke, which I don't expect it to, not yet. But if it broke, then maybe I would sell it. Uh, to someone for parts and then just get another one. But that idea makes me sad. I form an emotional bond with my cameras. And Dave? I don't think I'll get rid of it. Um, I I do need to finish um, fixing those seals so I can take it out again. I've, I've had too many other cameras to play with, so um, it hasn't felt urgent. But um, this has reminded me to dig it out and um, get it all uh, shipshape again. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't dream of getting rid of it. How about Ali? But with all these trials I went through to get the Mamiya RB67, I think it would take a lot for me to get rid of it or to ever sell it. And for me, I think I agree with Jess. And what would it take for me to get rid of it? Honestly, one billion dollars. No, 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 no. Each episode, we put on our zine smoking jackets, sit down in our front room with our house slippers on, light our cob pipes, and... Don't don't know about that, but... (laughs) Usually we talk about zines, but today we have something special, and this is a reissue of Texas Grit. I didn't actually see the original, so I'm so excited that she reprinted this. Eric, yes, let's get into it. Let's let's get this review going. Yeah, this is Texas Grit by Liz Potter, and that's uh, like Colonel Potter or Harry Potter, if you're not old. 
We've had Liz Potter on a few times, and right now there's definitely a bit of buzz about her, isn't there? Liz is kind of, she's kind of um, making a name for herself here. She's known for panoramic self-portraits as well as Polaroid lifts. But Texas Grit is neither of these. When a photographer carves out a little niche for herself in a specific corner of the film photography community, it's always fun to see what else they've done. Texas Grit was originally released in 2019, and she's reprinted it with a new cover and a new introduction. I think one of the photos has been swapped out too, but you'll have to figure that one out. The photos venture far from her back roads and campsites of, of her more recent work. Uh, here is Liz photographing towns and people. There are abandoned storefronts and small town dinosaur parks, which look really fun. She photographs photographers and a Cadillac with Johnny Cash painted on the trunk. There are pole halls and wonderfully pointy dancing boots and the vastness of Texas filled with life old and new. It would have been easy for Liz to capture what appears to be the shells of once thriving towns. She could have painted like a dead Texas, but she didn't. She found the lives still living in West Texas. The towns aren't in a boom, to be sure, but the folks are still holding their own. And Liz didn't dig to find this. She's there herself. This book is about the Texas grit that it takes to survive but it's also her own story. So you have a copy of this and I have a copy of this. Yes, we do. What do you think? <laughs> oh my gosh, it's wonderful. It, it is such a special honor to visit her town through her eyes because I don't think I would ever be able to experience West Texas without Liz, honestly. I think it's just one of those things. You, It's so easy to get on that I-10 and just zoop zoom right by. So being able to see all the wonderful places that she gets to visit and photograph has opened my mind more and more to the vastness of Texas as a state. Yeah, it really showed that there's life there. Yes. I really appreciated that. I think a lot of times we focus on like the decaying old towns, but that wasn't her focus. It was the life in those towns. Yeah, I drove through a couple years ago and drive some I-10, but I also drove on some smaller roads too and kind of went through some smaller towns, which I'm so thankful I did. But it is such a vast place, but there are these like little nooks everywhere and she knows them all. She's this guide. It's like a guidebook to like unexplored parts of Texas that she appreciates to the point where like you can see that she like you, you can tell that she loves this place. It yeah, shows. She it shows in her photographs. There's not a single person that I could think of that could photograph it better than than Liz. Yeah. And she moved there from Austin from like a really like kind of a, a really cool Austin scene. A long time ago, she's been there for a while now, and she purposely chose this this area because she fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. It isn't that she was born there, this is just how she is. She's able to notice these things that maybe, maybe lifelong residents couldn't notice. And so she brings both her love and her her new vision. Yeah, to appreciation. Western. Appreciation, yeah, exactly. It's always really exciting to see what Liz is up to, honestly. If you're on Instagram and not following Liz, I'm going to come over and slap you because she's just she's just such a great follow. So unique. She's doing her own thing. 
She's so creative and inspiring. The book itself, I think, is just a beautiful collection of her work. And it is absolutely worth having a copy of this. The photos were all shot with what could possibly be the second greatest 6x7 camera ever invented, the Pentax 67. Mm. Yeah, it is 8.5x11, kind of a, a wider version of that. 88 pages with 84 black and white photos. It's $35, but it's free shipping in the U.S. And that is mm. a hell of a deal. Hot dog. It's pretty rad. We will have the link in the show notes. Or she is at Liz Potter Photography on Instagram. Author Lens is brought to you by our lovely Patreon subscribers. Patreon helps us pay for hosting, books, our newspaper.com account for research, audio equipment, and much, much more. We would like to thank our subscribers for their support. We could not have done it without you. So if you like bonus episodes, full-length interviews, and extra nonsense, you can become a Patreon subscriber. We've got three different levels of support, with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head over to patreon.com slash lens for more information. Vanya, this is kind of wrapping up our show, our penultimate show of the season. <laughs> What are you up to for the next week? Oh my gosh. Choo choo. I'm so excited. I am going to spend all my money on gas and <laughs> heading up towards uh, the Mount Shasta area, actually, where uh, I used to live <laughs> many, many years ago. I actually just found out that I used to live in a campground up there for a month uh, while they looked for a place to live in Mount Shasta. So that was really funny. Yeah. So there's like this end of the line kind of like railroad days that they do up there. And I, like a true foamer, is going. <laughs> there's going to be bands. Also, John Free uh, has a book, End of the Line, that he's going to be showing. And there's a couple other books. There's like a moniker book that's going to be, I think, a like an art show for and much, much more things. So I will try to do my best to video a few things when I can. I'm always like embarrassed for some reason. Like they're like, oh my gosh, she's totally from LA. She's like recording things. I don't know. I get like weird. <laughs> well, but I, I, mean... will, I will sneakily like record things here and there so you guys can see what I'm up to. I've been like homebound for months and I'm just really, really excited to get out of LA and just see some open space. That is understandable. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, I'm going to do some light trespassing and a lot of photographing. <laughs> what about you? What is, what's your film photography life up to next week? Cause I know you ain't coming to see me. <laughs> well, I just don't know. It's been raining every weekend and kind of shitty during the weeks. It will probably start being less shitty during the weeks, but it'll still rain on the weekends. That's just kind of how it works. So also work on the weekend and then take a couple days off of work during the week. It is possible. We'll see. I don't have any plans. I want to fucking get out and camp because I have camped one time this year so far, just one night. And that I have a is, free camp spot. <laughs> that is kind of rough. So We'll see what happens. I don't know. I'm not trying to make plans. Um, 
there's a there's a saying, uh, trust no future, however pleasant, which I think applies here. But growing up, I thought the saying was trust trust no future, however present, meaning like no matter how close that future is, don't trust it. I think that makes more sense personally. So that's where I'm going with that. All right, guy. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we let these people get on with their lives? Thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail. And we're at allthroughalens on Twitter, I guess. You can also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. Fanya is at surfmartian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. God, you can never get that right. Both <laughs> of us are on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag All Through Lens Podcast to be featured. You can find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and really wherever else you find your podcast. Subscribe and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. Thank you all so, so much for listening. See you, at the next, see you next week at Dev Party. We love you, and bye-bye. Uh, Vanya? Yes? Oh, uh, do you want to go out and shoot? Shoot-shoot! <laughs> yes, I do! Sorry. Fuck yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go.